0: Please stand for the reading of God's Word.
1: Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil for the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Have you ever noticed that sometimes life doesn't make sense? That's what this Bible passage is about. We are not the first generation of people to notice that life does not make sense. The sage who's speaking in this book of Ecclesiastes is expressing frustration, a deep sense of angst that many human beings have felt, which is that, hey, we're trying to find meaning and purpose in life, but a lot of times life just simply does not make sense. Which is why, twice in this first verse, he's saying, Vanity. Everything is vanity. Now, God gave us this passage, much like the rest of Ecclesiastes, for several reasons. And I think one of them is that this text is here to provoke us to ask some of the big questions in life. Like this here's some big questions we should all think about. Why am I here? I don't mean like, why am I at church, at Christ Community Church on Sunday. I mean like, why do I exist on this planet? You didn't create yourself, did you? None of us is the cause of our own existence. So why are we here? Do I have a purpose? Is there something I'm supposed to do with my life? Related question is a question about our destiny. One thing that we all have in common is, sometime within the next couple hundred years, we're all going to die might not even take a couple hundred years. So question, where am I going to be a couple hundred years from now? Am I just going to cease to exist or is there more? Those sort of personal questions are also related to deeper questions about the history of the world. Is there any purpose to human history? Is the story of the universe going anywhere? Or, is our life just a matter of chance and chaos? Now, some of you in this room like to think about those questions all the time. A few, we've got a few philosophers in here. I'm looking at you, William Gaskins.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I love to ask those questions and think about it. Some, some people in this room, especially if you're a bit younger, maybe haven't even thought about those questions or trying to figure out what I'm talking about right now. There's some people in this room who... You don't like to think about those questions. It makes you feel uncomfortable. And whenever I ask you questions like this, um, you start feeling uneasy, start feeling nervous, you're afraid that the answer is going to be depressing or you're just overwhelmed, I'm not going to be able to find an answer. But several weeks ago when we started our study of the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, I quoted to you the philosopher Kierkegaard who said, God gave us this book to awaken you to concern about yourself to awaken you. A lot of us are just coasting through life. We're just surviving day to day, trying to meet our next little goal, but not asking the big question, why? What is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And this text is designed to provoke us to ask that question. I would say asking these big questions about life is kind of like eating your vegetables. Some people in the room like eating your vegetables. Some people in the room don't like eating your vegetables, but it's good for all of us, right? So these questions require you to think about some hard questions that don't have easy answers. It's good for us to stop and think about it. In verse 14, the very first verse of our text, we already see angst about the meaning of life and the meaning of human history flowing out of the age. Let's read that verse again says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Twice in that verse we see this word vanity. And that English word is translating a Hebrew word, hevel, that we need to remember what it means. Everybody say, Hevel. Hevel, this Hebrew word, means mist or vapor or smoke. Now, the thing about mist or vapor is you can see it. It's got a shape. It reflects light. You can see a form there. But then, when you reach out and try and grab it, it goes through your fingers. Over and over, this book of Ecclesiastes has been saying hevel, 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 hevel. And here in this passage, again, it's saying Hevel, because what it's saying is, I'm searching for the meaning of life. I'm asking, why are we here? Is the story of human history going anywhere? Is there goodness and justice at work in the universe? Or is it just chaos and chance? And he's saying, I think I see it, and then I reach out to grab it, and it slips through my fingers. I can't make sense out of life. And the particular mystery that the sage is wrestling with today, is this mystery that, sometimes, really good people, suffer, while really wicked people succeed. That's an ugly mystery. And the sage is frustrated about it, saying it doesn't make sense. Another way to say this would be, a lot of times, life simply is not fair. Another way to say it would be, there's injustice everywhere in human history. Now that's something to grieve, that's something to lament. And if we're going to understand verse 14, we've got to remember the verses with which we ended last week. These are not printed in your bulletin, but if you've got your Bible, open to Ecclesiastes 8 and look at the verses right before this. I'm going to read to you again verses 12 and 13, where we ended last week. It says this, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Now in those verses, Ecclesiastes eight, twelve, and 13, this sage, this wisdom teacher was saying, Look, I know that God exists, and I know that God is good, and I know that He is just, so I know God's justice is going to win in the end. Isn't that good news? God's going to set the world right. God's justice will end, uh, will win in the end. So he's saying, even if wicked people thrive for a while and righteous people suffer for a while, I know God is good, so he's going to set it right. But now in verse 14, he's coming back to the fact, I'm confident that God's justice is going to win in the end, but the problem is we live in the middle. In the end, God's goodness will win. But in the middle of my life, and in the middle of human history, very often seems like wickedness is winning evil is winning can you relate to that sometimes this reality hurts really bad because what the sage is saying i know god's going to win in the end but i may not see any justice in my lifetime and that bothers me as humans and as christians we have to wrestle with this reality we don't know Maybe goodness is going to win this century, or maybe not. Maybe God's people are called to be faithful to follow Christ through a few centuries of wickedness getting the upper hand in the world. And then God's goodness will come. Now, if what I'm saying bothers you, you're not alone. Because that's what's got the sage saying, Hevel, vanity, life doesn't make sense.
0: John Mark's been saying that we find this sage on a search to find the meaning of life. He's trying to figure out what, what God is up to in the world. If there's so much heaven, what is God up to? The sage is trying to make sense out of the work of God in the world, and here's what he finds out. We can't find it out. We can't make sense of it. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. We'll read those again. They're printed in your bulletin. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So the sage sets out to find the meaning of life. So what he does is he observes all human activity that he can. He observes all the business that is done on earth. He looks to see what gets people up in the day and what keeps people up at night. He's looking for all the business. He's asking the question, trying to figure out what is God up to? What is the point of all this? What are God's purposes? If you look at verse 17, you can see what he found out. He says, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. He says, we can't figure it out. He says, we can't grasp the meaning of life by looking at what is happening in the world. We can go to Oklahoma City. We can go to Tulsa. We can go to D.C. We can go to London. We can go to Siberia. And what he's saying is, we can get degrees in economics or sociology or political science or history. And they, can't, they cannot tell us the meaning of life. All these disciplines we're talking about are what disciplines? They can tell us what is happening or what has happened, but they're not for what disciplines. They can't tell us why. They can't tell us why injustice persists. They can't tell us why oppression exists. We can observe one end of the earth to the other, and we won't be able to deduce what God is up to. Now, this is real talk. People can't figure out what God is up to on their own. Now, for many of us, I know this hits pretty close to home because I've talked to you and some of you are going through some really painful situations. Mm-hmm. You have family problems, work problems, school problems, mental problems, emotional problems, relational problems, financial problems, political problems. And if we look at that, we might start to ask the question, is it worth it? We can talk about how injustice is everywhere, but what happens when you see it and you can't fix it? Where is God in that? I want to sit in that just a little bit. The disorientation of life. Life can be disorienting. Life has a way of reminding us that we are not in control. And the sage is telling us, That if you just look at what's going on around you, you're not going to determine if or how anything redemptive is happening, not conclusively. If you want to know what's really going on in the world, what God is up to, you can't read enough books to figure it out. You can't watch enough movies to figure it out. You can't read enough tweets to figure it out. You can't grasp it through human means. And what the sage is telling us, what he's alerting us to, is the fact that humans don't have the wisdom to figure out the meaning of life on their own. So one thing that our text tells us is this. Now, listen to me carefully. Don't pretend like you have life figured out. When somebody comes to you and asks for advice, don't pretend like you have life figured out. Look at the end of verse 17. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Now, in this sentence, we find the sage using the word wise in an ironic way. A few chapters ago, we talked about how whenever we see the word wise or the word wisdom in Ecclesiastes, we need to think about what kind of wisdom are we talking about? Because there's a godly wisdom, and there's some other kind of wisdom. And the sage here is telling us that, that the wise person, the wise man claims to know. He claims to have an understanding of the world, the meaning of life, but clearly he doesn't. He claims to know, but he can't find it out. See, there's a wisdom... A type of wisdom that says, I can figure out the meaning of life on my own. But that's not true wisdom. True wisdom, fam, true wisdom recognizes this reality that I can't grasp God's purposes on my own. In other words, true wisdom starts with true humility. So when you get disoriented, the wrong thing to do would be to pretend like you have life figured out. Because what this is telling us is, we can't figure it out. So,
2: in this text, and thus far in Ecclesiastes, we're being alerted to a paradox, which is one of the major puzzles, one of the major conundrums of human existence. Listen to the two sides of this coin. On one hand, human beings desperately need to have some kind of answer to what is life all about. We can't stop asking those questions. The sage can't stop asking in Ecclesiastes. Throughout history, human beings are asking, what, if, what am I here for? What is my purpose? This is a distinctly human problem. I've never met a squirrel that's bothered by this. Right? This is, this, we, we are the rational animals who are staying up at night, asking questions. What is it all about? We need a sense of purpose and meaning and justice and truth and beauty But on the other hand, as long as we're depending upon our own capacity to observe the universe and try to make sense of it, we can't ever find it. We can't ever figure it out. Now, this is not the only passage in Scripture that teaches this. Chauncey and I are going to point you to a couple others in a minute. But the Bible, a lot of times, says stuff like this. Human beings, on our own, are not able to figure out what life is all about. It's not just the Bible. Lots of ancient philosophers talk about this. Now, we might start to think, well, that's because they were unsophisticated ancient people. But we're living in modern times. But friends, we need to recognize technological advancement doesn't solve this problem. Scientific knowledge doesn't solve this problem. If you get the best microscope in the world, you can discover all sorts of great things about molecules and atoms and quarks. But you can't answer the question, why? You can't answer the question about your destiny. Where are you going to be 200 years from now? What's your purpose for existence? That's what Chauncey was talking about earlier. All the scientific knowledge that we've gained is telling us what, but it's not telling us for what or so what. Now, somebody who came to understand this, that uh, their writing has helped me along the way, is a guy named Dr. Francis Collins. Some of you may have heard of him before. He's a famous scientist because he was the founder of the Human Genome Project. So one of the most respected um, biological genetic scientists in the world and helped map human DNA. That's a big deal. And actually his current gig is to be the director of the NIH. So he's Anthony Fauci's boss. That's his current job. But he started out as an atheist that didn't believe in God, an atheistic scientist. And the more he studied and the more he thought, the more he kept facing mysteries of life of physical reality as he was doing things like mapping human DNA, and of relationships and of moral reality that he came to recognize, science cannot answer any of the most important questions that I have about the universe. And I, I want you, he eventually embraced Christianity and wrote about it several places. But let me just read you a few sentences from his story. As he was starting out on his journey of searching for spiritual truth, listen to what he wrote about it. As a graduate student in physical chemistry in the 1970s, I was an atheist, finding no reason to postulate the existence of any truths outside of mathematics, physics, and chemistry. I just don't need any of that. He continues. But when I went to medical school and encountered life and death issues at the bedsides of my patients, but then I went and discovered those things, challenged by one of those patients who asked me, What do you believe, doctor? I began searching for answers. I had to admit that the science I loved so much was powerless to answer questions such as, What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why does mathematics work anyway? If the universe had a beginning, who created it? Why are the physical constants in the universe so finely tuned to allow the possibility of complex life forms? Why do humans have a moral sense? What happens after we die? Science could help raise some of those questions, but it couldn't answer them. Another atheistic scientist that converted to Christianity is a guy named Alistair McGrath. And he recently wrote a book about these questions, what the meaning of life. And the point, a point that he made is that the best scientific knowledge, in particular in terms of the science of studying human beings, our neurology, our psychology can't give us any help with answering why we are here, because that's not an empirical question. But what it has shown us is that we desperately need an answer to that question. Contemporary psychologists have learned that there's a universal human needs. We need a sense of purpose. If we don't have a sense of the meaning of things, it's really hard for human beings to thrive, which is why we're constantly searching for those questions. So where does that leave us? Well, to help us answer that question, I want to point you to another passage of Scripture. If you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to one of my favorite passages in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's Proverbs chapter 30. I'll give you a second to turn there. I'm going to read the first six verses, Proverbs chapter 30. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can just listen. First one starts like this. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle. So in other words, there's a wise guy guy named Agur, and here's what he thinks. He says, "The man declares, "I am weary, O God." Man, I relate to that. Anybody feel exhausted by life? He says, "I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man." That's that humility Johnson was talking about. "Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One." And then verse four says, "Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists?" Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Now, if I could paraphrase what those first few verses are saying, he's saying, first of all, I'm exhausted by trying to figure out what life is all about and I can't figure it out. I just don't have the equipment. I don't have the information. But uh, I also have noticed that nobody has it figured out. That the collective wisdom of human beings are inadequate to answer our basic fundamental driving questions about the meaning of life. But he doesn't stop there. Listen to what verses 5 and 6 say. He says, Every word of God proves true. Everybody say, the word of God. God. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So he's saying, on one hand, human beings can't discover the meaning of life on our own. We just don't have access to that information. But then he's saying, that's a really good reason to listen to the one who made us. Do you know who would have access to the answer to the question, why are we here? Our Creator. Our Creator would know that. So he says, if you want truth, if you want stability, if you want some answers to the meaning of life. You can't find it by just looking around and trying to observe. You need to listen to what God has to tell you. Now this verse, um, to help us think about the significance of what's being said here, I want to talk about two ways to know something. Okay? I'm going to use a little metaphor. We're going to talk about knowing something by seeing it or knowing something by hearing it. So there's some stuff that we can know through sight. Alright, we've got some kids in the room, so I'm going to try to help you out, try to make this as simple as I can. I've been quoting a bunch of philosophers after all. Let's be simple. Everybody point to your eyes and say sight. sight. There's some stuff you can know through direct observation. You can see it. Like, I know you are in this room. I can see you. Um, If you look around, then you will discover that all these other people are in the room. There's a lot of things I can tell you through direct observation. I can tell you where I live. I can tell you my address. I can tell you all about what my wife is like. There's even some scientific facts that I did some experiments in school, and I can tell you some stuff. Um... There's a lot I can discover. But there are also things that I have no way of directly observing. I can only gain knowledge about these areas if somebody else directly observes it and then tells me about it. So that's what we know through hearing. So everybody point to your ears, say hearing. Hearing. If I hear somebody else's testimony about what they've observed, now I can participate in the knowledge of another person. Mm -hmm. So what would be an example of that? Anything that happened before I was born. Right, I know nothing about human history prior to my birth by direct observation. Now, I know a lot of stuff about human history because I've read stuff written by people that were there. Right, So I hear the witness, and I choose to believe them and I can share in their knowledge. I know some stuff about Italy. I've never been to Italy, but other people have been to Italy. They saw it, and they came and told me about it. So there's some stuff that we can know through direct observation, but that's a really small slice of reality. There's a whole lot of other things about reality that I can know only if I choose to listen to the witness of someone who knows. And what we're trying to say is those deep questions about the purpose of life, the meaning of human existence, only God could know. So we can't discover it through autonomous human reason. We can't discover it through sight. We can only begin to answer those questions when we learn to hear The Word of God. So everybody say, hear the Word.
0: Hear the Word. Now this is why the path to wisdom begins with the fear of God. Everyone say, fear God. Fear God. So we have, hear the Word. Everybody say, hear the Word. Hear the Word. And fear God. God. To understand the meaning of life, we have to rely on God's wisdom, not on our own. This means we have to acknowledge His authority as as Creator and acknowledge our submission as Creatures. We have to trust what he says more than we trust our experience. You catch that? We have to trust what he says more than we trust our experience. Because our experience is limited. Listen to how theologian and author J.I. Packer expressed this in his book, Knowing God. Listen to these words. He says, not till we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, Acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours? What Packer is saying, he's saying that humility and teachability and awe of God and littleness and distrust of our own thoughts and a willingness to believe what God says even when it seems impossible, these are prerequisites to gaining understanding of the meaning of life. Now, Packer is just riffing off a, the testimony of Scripture, like John Mark already told us. And what he's saying can be found in many places. One of my favorite places in wisdom literature is in Job chapter 28. Why don't you turn with me in Job chapter 28? This is a passage in which the poet is describing his search for wisdom. And in the first few verses of this, of this chapter, Job 28, he's talking about where to go to find wisdom. And he's saying, you can't, you cannot Mine wisdom, like you mine precious stones. But then in verse 20, he says this. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. See, wisdom is hidden from the creation. If you're alive, you can't find it. We've already talked about that. You can't find it under the sun. And just in case you think you can find it by dying, the poet says, nope. Abaddon, which is destruction and death, they can't find it either. Only God knows the way to wisdom. God sees the expanse of the universe. And we have this beautiful description of God's creative activity when he says, he gave the wind its weight. He apportioned the waters by measure. He gave the rain its instructions. He laid the way for the lightning. This God and only this God, God the creator, the source of all things, he's the one who understands the way to wisdom. And he's the only one. So the poet ends by saying, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Everyone say, fear God. Fear God. Unless you can weigh the wind... Unless you can measure the oceans, unless you can direct the rain or lead the lightning, he says you can't find wisdom on your own. But if you acknowledge God as the source of wisdom, and if you trust him, listen to him, honor him, receive his love for you, you've found wisdom. Says the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom.
2: So let's review. We've, we've kind of been jumping around some, some, from, to some different scriptures. What we're seeing so far is Ecclesiastes is first acknowledging this fact that life is often, often frustrating and confusing. And not just frustrating and confu- confusing, but it's painful because of injustice. And many of us here feel that pain in our personal lives. All of us here are probably aware of that reality in our world. And it said, the, the more you try and figure it out, the more you're going to discover that you can't figure out what it's all about. Now, we've jumped to Proverbs and Job and heard them confirming human beings simply don't have the equipment to figure out what it's all about. But then they took us a step further, says, so if you want to learn how to live well in this world with so much confusion and chaos and mystery, you need to hear God. Everybody say, hear God. Hear God. And everybody say, fear God. Fear God. So now we've got to ask the question, OK, if we learn to hear God and to fear God, what does that get for us? Do we suddenly understand everything? Does life suddenly make sense to us? No, it does not. That might be discouraging to you. I find it encouraging because I already knew that I didn't have it all figured out. So this means I might not necessarily be doing it wrong. Listen, when you learn to hear God and to fear God, it's not like you get a God's eye view of the universe. God is still God and you are still not God. Just in case your neighbor is confused, please turn to them and say, you are not God. We're still just people. And there's going to be a thousand unresolved questions. Part of what it means to learn to be a mature human and a mature Christian is to learn how to live well, to live with joy, to live with dignity, to live with love and justice, even when you got 10,000 questions you can't answer. Can we live well, even in the midst of uncertainty? It doesn't tell us the meaning of it all, but what we do get when we learn to hear God and fear God is we get access to some bedrock truths that are beautiful and that are good, that can give us joy and strength and direction even in the midst of the mystery. Like, when we learn to hear God and fear God, we learn that God reigns over all things with His wisdom and His grace and His justice, that God is going to heal all the wounds of the world even if we can't imagine how that would happen. We learn that We matter. Your life matters because God created you for a relationship with Himself and God created you to participate with Him in His work of healing the world, which means God wants to do something good in the world through you that can't happen through anybody else. What we do learn when we hear God and fear God is that He will walk with us through the good times in life and He will be extra near to us in the hard times in life. What we do learn when we hear God, and fear God, is that Jesus Christ and His cross and resurrection gives us a hope and a comfort that is deeper than all of our failure and our pain. Isn't that all good stuff? stuff. Well, we also learn that this life is a gift. It's a gift. And what Ecclesiastes is telling us is that because God is good and life is a gift, we can have joy even in the midst of the mystery. That's what verse 15 is all about. Let's look at that verse now. Verse 15, in your bulletin, Ecclesiastes 8.15 says, And I commend joy. I've been trying to tell everybody that the book of Ecclesiastes is about living with joy in a broken world. Everybody say "Joy." joy. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What he's saying is, life is frustrating, life is difficult. You're often not going to be able to... Make sense of life, but you can choose to live with joy because you know God. You can choose to have joy. And that choice to live with joy is often an act of defiant faith and hope. It's an act of defiant faith because it's saying even if the world is chaos, even if politics is a mess, even if it feels like the people that have the power are wicked, I know that God is good. And He's stronger than all those forces in the world. It's an act of hope because it's saying, I don't understand how it's going to happen, but Jesus said He was going to rise from the grave and then He rose from the grave and He said He's going to come back and heal the world, so I believe it. It's an act of hope. We can also learn to live with joy because of the last part of what the verse says. Look at the end of verse 15 again. It says, Joy will go with Him in His toil. So look, it's using the word toil here, guys. It's not lying to you and saying life's going to be easy and smooth. Life's going to be frustrating and painful at times. But it says joy can go with you through the toil, uh, the days of your life that God has given him under the sun. Do you hear what it just said there? Your life is a gift from God. It's a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it. God just created you as an act of free love. And the text is alerting us to the fact that the mystery of life not only does it include lots of ugly and painful things, but the mystery of life includes lots of beautiful things. In this text, it alerts us to the simple gifts that God gives us, like food and drink. Every day, God gives us simple little pleasures. And it's saying, enjoy them. They're gifts from God. Enjoy them along the way with thanksgiving in your hearts. Now, food and drink is a start, but that's just a that's just a really small start. God has given us a lot of gifts, hasn't He? That was really weak, y'all. Come on, y'all. Has God given us a lot of gifts? That's right. I mean, we could spend years trying to list them all. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. So God has given us innumerable good gifts. We don't have time to even start listing them, but Chauncey's going to try.
0: All right. Y'all, yeah, I'm going to take some time to do this. and I want to invite you. Um, you can write these down if you want to. I wouldn't encourage you to. I really encourage you to listen. Let this capture your imagination because I know as John Mark was talking just now, some of you don't believe that your life is actually a gift. Hmm. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you don't believe that you created that you were created and this, this really has meaning and, and there's a reason why you've got the personality that you do, you've got the family that you do, you've got the experiences that you do. What God is saying is your life is a gift. Hmm. So as I read these this little, little little, list for the next, like, eight minutes. <laughs> I want you to just, just, this is a taste of what God has done. I want us to consider the gifts of God. Notice them. Meditate on them. Where's of the gifts of God? Light. Genesis 1.1. God said, or Genesis three. excuse me. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Gift of God. Sunrise. <laughs> Matthew 5.45. He makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good. <laughs> Gift of God. Phases of the moon. From the crescent to the gibbous, to the blue moon. Jeremiah 31, 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the fixed order of the moon. Stars. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Not just stars, but the order of them. Constellations. Amos 5, 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion. The ocean. Psalm 95, verse 5, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands mm. formed the dry land. Not just the ocean, but the sounds of the ocean. Some of you mm. got some sound machines, help you go to sleep at night. You need the sounds of the ocean. Jeremiah 31, 35, thus says the Lord, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Mm. The mountain, Psalm 65, verse 6, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might. The depths of the valleys and the heights of the mountains, Kathmandu, Nepal, Psalm 104, verse 8, the mountains rose, the valleys sunk down to the place that you appointed for them. Mm. Mountain springs, Psalm 104, verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. Spring showers, Matthew five forty five. he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Seasons, Psalm 74, verse 17, you have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. He gave us the beauty of flowers. Matthew 6, 28 and 29. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Trees. Psalm 104, verse 16. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. Trees. This week. Hard to believe sometimes. But trees. He gave them. Give us oxygen. Vegetation, Genesis one eleven, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is in their seed, which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. He gives sweet bread and sweet wine. I'm mm. thinking cinnamon rolls, pan bon dulce, and chardonnay, friends. Amen. <laughs> Psalm so, um, 104, verses 14 and 15, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Psalm so, um, 104, 24 and 25, we have sea creatures. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures, ending things both small and great. Every animal, Genesis 1.25, including pets. <laughs> and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it, that it was good. Hmm. People. Psalm 139, 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul. Oh, my soul knows it very well. Amen. Children. Psalm 127, verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Grandchildren, Ezekiel 37, 25, they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. He gives strength to young people. Proverbs 20, verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength. He gives gray hairs to older folks. Same verse. (laughs) The splendor of old men is their gray hair. But if you don't think old age is a gift, listen to Isaiah 46, 3-4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. Mm. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Yeah. He made dance, y'all. Mm. Come on. <laughs> Psalm 30, verse 11. You have turned from me my morning into dancing. He made music and singing. Psalm 92, 1 through 4. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. I declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. He gave us work. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And keep it. He gave us skill and artisanship. Skill and artisanship. <laughs> this is about Bezalel, the son of Uri. He says, And I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. It's Exodus 31 5. He gave us time. Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. He gives food to the hungry. Psalm 136, verse 25, he gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. He gives drink to the thirsty and to the broke. Mm. Isaiah 55, verse 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He gives power to the weak. Isaiah 40, verse 29, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. He gives favor to the humble. Proverbs 33, verse 34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. He gives justice to the oppressed. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He gives protection to the fatherless and to the widow. Psalm 68, verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. He gives a home to the lonely. Psalm 68, verse 6. God settles the solitary in a home. He gives rest to the anxious. You anxious toilers. He gives anxi- rest, rest to the anxious. Psalm 127, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, go late to rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives peace. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He gives comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's comfort, (laughs) y'all. He gives forgiveness. Psalm 103, verse 3, he forgives all your iniquity. He gives healing, same verse, who heals all your diseases. He gives miracles. If you experienced a miracle, give me a whoop. Whoop. Psalm 105, verse 5, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. If you're forgiven, that's a miracle for you. He gives grace. James 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives friendship. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, 1 Samuel 18, 1. If you have friends that you love like your own soul, if you've got friends that love you like you love your own soul, that's a gift from God. Mm-hmm. He gives good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the captive, and to the bound. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61, verse 1. He gives joy. Ecclesiastes five nineteen. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. He gives love. 1 John four nineteen. We love as a result of his loving us first. We can keep going, y'all. Mm-hmm. And you should. But here's the point. Everybody say, every good gift.
2: Every good gift.
0: Every good gift. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. We can live with joy because God has given us so, so many, so many gifts.
2: I want to end today by just reminding you, you know what the best gift of God is? It's Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. It's
0: all about Jesus.
2: Jesus is God giving Himself to us. That's who Jesus is. And the thing is, God wants you to enjoy all that stuff that Chauncey just listed. Enjoy the good food. Enjoy the beautiful stars. Enjoy the friendship and the children and the music and the dance. Enjoy all of that stuff. Let it make you happy, but it can't satisfy you forever. Only God can do that. And Jesus is God giving Himself to us. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can enjoy all those other gifts. On the cross, Jesus is God bearing my guilt and my fear and my shame because the persistent injustice in the universe is not just out there. It's inside of me and it's inside of you. Which means when God's justice comes to make all things right, we would have a problem unless we also had a merciful God. But on the cross, we find a merciful God who loves us and bears our guilt and offers us forgiveness if we'll just trust Him. In His resurrection, we find that hope that I was talking about earlier, that He's going to make all things new. Listen, in Jesus, we find answers to those big questions we started with. What is your identity? If, you're tr- if you trusted in Christ, I know the answer. There's a lot I could say about your identity, but here's a starting point. You are a beloved child of God. That's right. That's who you are. What's your purpose? I know your purpose. Not because I found it by looking around, but because I heard the word of God. And here's what God said. You were created to know and enjoy God forever. For the eternal bliss of delighting in friendship with God. And one aspect of that is, until you go to heaven to be with Him, He has created you for good works. Which means, when evil is persistent in the universe we don't just have to get frustrated we can get busy with the power of the holy spirit doing something about it what is your destiny i know it because i heard in the word of god that in his presence there is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore in christ we don't find all the answers that we want but we find all the answers that we need so that we can live with joy even in the mystery of life let's pray our Father in heaven, you are so good. And I pray that right now, as, as I'm praying, and as we take the Lord's Supper, and as we sing, that your Holy Spirit would pour out some of the grace that we've been talking about. Would you give us faith? Would you shine the light of your truth into our hearts? For those who are hurting right now, would you comfort them? For those who are weary right now, would you give them power and strength? For all of us, would you make us zealous for good works? Would you rekindle our hope in Jesus? Would you teach us humility and the fear of the Lord that we wouldn't come with pride shaking our fists at you, but we'd come with humility saying, Father, forgive us and teach us your ways. Pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.